This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. And we are back with another fabulous edition of Jews You Should Know. And again, as we did two weeks ago, when we featured Saul Ortiger of Outer Stuff, we are again coming to you from Toledo, Spain, where I recorded this interview with Anthony Moschal live. Really fascinating conversation, such an interesting background. Again, we took off last week celebrating my son Shalom's bar mitzvah. Thank God it was a very festive and joyous occasion, a great blessing to be able to celebrate that with many family and friends. And now we're back and again featuring Anthony Moschelle. Anthony is South African born, lives currently in the United Kingdom and a really interesting story which took him through medical school and a brief stint practicing medicine into business, the world of online gaming, online casino games, then into the world of real estate venture capitalism, and ultimately profound impact in philanthropy, specifically in the areas of orphans in the former Soviet Union, and Jewish outreach and education. I got to sit down with Anthony in Toledo, Spain a couple months ago, and finally bringing you that delightful conversation. I learned so much and was really quite inspired by his understated yet profoundly ambitious approach to life. And now to my conversation with businessman and philanthropist, Anthony Moschel. And we are here with businessman and Jewish leader, Anthony Moschel. How are you, Anthony? Doing good, Ari. Doing good. Thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. We are here coming live, so to speak, from the Olami Global Forum, Global Leadership Conference, a very exciting convocation of 595 students from around the world, plus many, many other lay leaders and so forth. So uh, great to speak with you here and thrilled that you're here to join us. Very good to be here. Thank you. Anthony, tell us a little bit about where you're from. I believe that you currently live in Britain, but uh, I hear a little South African accent in there. Is that is that correct? Yeah, yeah. You can hear a lot of South African in there. Um, I'm a South African from Durban. Uh, it's a city on the coast. Uh, lived in Cape Town and Johannesburg. Uh, and my wife and I and kids moved to London 13 years ago. Wow. So you so really made the rounds in, 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 uh, in South Africa. You hit all the, all the cities with Jewish uh, people in it, I guess. Yeah, we, we, we hit the high spots. Uh, you missed Pretoria? Is that one of the places? <laughs> yeah, we, we, we missed Pretoria. <laughs> That's about it. Yeah, didn't miss much. That's it. So, where were you actually born, and where was uh, like, your main childhood? Yeah. So, grew up in Durban, uh, which is a city on the coast. Good uh, middle-class suburban uh, background, kind of probably similar to growing up in Miami. Uh, similar weather, similar lifestyle, uh, different accent, good beaches. Is it beautiful? What's, uh, you're on the uh, Indian Ocean there? What is yeah, that? <laughs> Durban's on the Indian Ocean. It's cool. Uh, it's a surfing center of the world. Um, uh, good beaches, good people. We had a community of about 5,000 Jews. 
uh, it was a good place. Great childhood. And what was the Jewish community like there? Because I know that very often in South Africa was known to have very traditional communities, but not necessarily strictly observant. Um, what was your experience? Yeah, so South Africa was always a very traditional community. To kind of summarize it, uh, we'd drive to shul on a Friday night and park around the corner. Um, you know, God forbid we'd park in front of the shul. That just wasn't done. Uh, we'd make kiddush on a Friday night and uh, go shopping and or go to the beach on Saturday. Th- that, that was that was kind of how it was. You know, very traditional, respectful. It's an interesting place. Reform never made inroads into South Africa. Um, South Africans are mainly Lithuanians. We Litvaks. So we expected our rabbis to be rabbis. Uh, and we kind of knew, knew what a rabbi should look like. And, um, you know, somebody once asked a question, you know, to, you know, to a South African rabbi, what would happen if you, if you drove to shul on a Shabbos? Even though his community all drove themselves. And the answer is, well, you know, Saturday night he'd be fired. You know, so there, there was a kind of uh, recognition of what was authentic, uh, even th- even though we didn't really hold by it ourselves. Interesting. Yeah. So you uh, you grew up in that very, as you said, South African milieu. Did you feel strongly identified Jewishly? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, we, we felt very Jewish. Uh, Durban specifically was quite a small community. Uh, we had one uh, one Jewish school system, so went to Jewish nursery school, Jewish primary school. Jewish high school, uh, which um, you know, probably most of the community did as well, uh, and we sort of grew up very, you know, strong Zionists, uh, very Zionistic. We we didn't learn too much about Judaism. Um, we knew a lot about the Holocaust, uh, but not too much about you know what it meant to be Jewish. But um, I think that a lot of what I got Jewish-wise I got from home, from my parents. Did you visit Israel early on? My first trip to Israel was when I was twelve. And then since very often. <laughs> so South African Jews tend to be very connected to Israel. That, that's a big part of their identity. Um, and part of that was uh, South Africa's gone through some tough times. And uh, the South African mentality is that the country is always on the edge of a precipice. Um, it's been like that since the 60s. So the concept of needing a place to, to go to or escape to is always a strong thing. Um, which is not necessarily a very positive way to look at uh, one's Judaism or Zionism, but th- that was a reality. Wow. Uh, yeah, good place. Good, good place. place. I've never been, but uh, I've got to take, take a tour at some no, you've point. you've got to go. Hit the bush. <coughs> go in summer. In the summer, okay, which is actually the winter, right? Yeah, go, go in your winter <laughs> to our summer. There you go. Yeah, it's the other way around. Tell me to go in the summer, I'll take you uh, literally and I'll uh, be freezing. <clears throat> Having said that, the uh, winters in Durban are better than, than the summers in London. Really? Yeah. I guess it's London rains every day, so. Yeah, it, 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 not every day, most, most days. <laughs> so what ultimately brought you to Great Britain? Now, did, did you, I assume you went to college in South Africa? When yeah. did you start to move uh, yeah. in a different direction? Okay, so uh, as I say, grew up in Durban, went to Jewish school, ended up studying medicine in Cape Town. Uh, I thought that it was a good way to help people. You know, little did I know, you know, the last thing that you want to do if you want to help people is do medicine. <laughs> Why uh, do you say that? Uh, as my brother says, says, you know, when I gave up medicine, I saved a lot of lives. And I think I probably, you know, by giving up medicine, I, I did save lives. And just to kind of segue into that, um, one of the main reasons I went into medicine was I wanted to help people. And that is probably why I left. I figured rather get into business, be successful and kind of make an impact uh, through that route. 
philanthropy uh, through philanthropy and uh, thank god that's been successful we've you know uh, had a good uh, run in business and managed to really get involved in, in some seriously good high impact projects now of course that's a, a risky proposition because not every person who gets into business um, you know makes it on the scale that they can really make that broad impact you know even if not not even a failed business you know you might just make enough to support your family but to go into business with the purpose of becoming a, a philanthropist um, is, is a tenuous proposition, wouldn't you say? Yeah, it's, it's a tenuous proposition. I think part of the advantage of naivety and ignorance is that you kind of do stupid stuff because you don't know <laughs> that, uh, that they're stupid. And, you know, sometimes you get lucky, sometimes you don't. You know, and that's muzzle. You know, th um, I had a few, uh, after transitioning from medicine into business, via a stint in consultancy, I uh, started a few businesses which failed. Uh, ultimately got into business with my brother in the online gaming space, which, uh, thank God, was successful. Uh, but there's no guarantees. And I think the, the key to the whole thing is really focusing on what your abilities and strengths are and uh, having clear goals. When you left medicine, were you in the middle of medical school or had you already finished it? No, I, I practiced as an MD for, for about two and a half you years. Did? Wow. Uh, emergency medicine, you know, so the stuff where you get people come in either stabbed or shot yeah, or triage, yeah. can't breathe, all that kind of stuff. So I did that for, for oh about a year. Yeah, I did emergency medicine, a bit of neurosurgery, uh, delivered babies, uh, and then uh, thought this is not my game at all. Did, were you not enjoying it? Were you not feeling fulfilled? I mean, what about it? Obviously, again, it sounds like you want to make like this broader impact. Um, but were you, were you feeling dissatisfied with that career? You know, part of, uh, part of the problem I had is I kind of had this notion I wanted to help people. So I went into medicine. Uh, in second year, we had a lecture by a professor of uh, immunology. He pointed out that uh, if we wanted to save lives and help people, we really are in the, in the wrong job. Uh, we'd probably actually kill more people than we save. Really? Um, that's a pretty bold statement. I think it's. Pro I don't know how many people are saved, but I kind of got a, probably you know there probably a few that slip through and I and and because kind of, of what misdiagnosis or, or? Uh, people generally come into hospitals pretty sick and you know just never go to hospital. People die there. Right. You know. But that's not that, because of the doctors. That's uh, quite often it is. You know, sometimes they miss things. Sometimes they don't pick things up. I mean, I remember a few cases where, you know, in retrospect, could I've done more? Could I've done better? Uh, I think you can always do better, right. or, or you can sometimes do better. Uh, anyway, so as my brother said, I probably saved a lot of lives by leaving. And uh, so anyway, to, go, to get back to my professor, he said, if you really want to help people and save lives, hand out vaccines in Africa. Mm. If you really want to do stuff, do it on a big scale. Um, if you're going to be uh, using your own two hands to do stuff, uh, you're going to be limited. Uh, and I think that's independent of financial success or anything. You know, arguably the biggest donor to the Jewish world was Rabbi Yechiel Eckstein. He was recently Nifta, yeah. who was a rabbi. He had a TV show. Uh, he raised tens, hundreds of millions or billions over his lifetime and gave it away. You know, he didn't go into business. He wasn't, he wasn't a successful businessman, but he was arguably the most successful Jewish philanthropist in the last 10 years last 20, 30 years maybe, apart from Mr. Zev Wolfson maybe. Interesting. So uh, the whole trick here uh, I think is really knowing yourself 
And if I can tell you a story that I had with uh, Mr. Ellie Horn, which will uh, kind of guide this. Uh, sure. We'll be talking to him later today. So, <clears throat> okay, so <laughs> okay, so even better than listening to my story, but Ellie Horn is listening to him. But just an anecdote that, that uh, I can share, which really clarified to me what the whole echo of this thing is. So about three, three, four years ago, I had a meeting set up with Mr. Horn um, in London. He was flying in from Brazil. And uh, the agenda of the meeting was to discuss some joint projects that we had. We've been supporters of uh, JLE in London, uh, Asia Tour in South Africa, Asia in the UK. Uh, did I say awesome in South Africa? Did not, but that's an okay. awesome. So uh, it's an awesome mistake. <laughs> uh, awesome in South Africa. And uh, anyway, so the agenda was ready to follow up and see how we're doing. Well, that's what I thought the agenda was. So I came in prepared to discuss that. Um, I came with one of my fellow trustees of, of our foundation, uh, a very close friend, Damon Hoff. Anyway, Mr. Horn had just flown overnight from Brazil. Um, we met at about 7.30 at the Langham uh, in, uh, in the West End in London. And Mr. Horn was waiting. He was already wearing a suit. Uh, he was feeling, looking much sharper than we were, you know, <laughs> that time of day. And uh, we sat down, and I expected to uh, launch into discussion about... Uh, these various programs and he looked me in the eye and he asked me where was I before Hashem created the universe so I looked at my friend Damon and I said Damon kind of help me I've got no idea what this uh, mogul from Brazil just asked me like like what is this so he said to me look you know he asked you not me you know you're, you're on your own here so I said I answered you know I imagine I was part of Hashem. He says, yeah. He says, you must have been, you were. <coughs> Before Hashem created the universe and everything, there was only Hashem. <coughs> you must have been there. I said, fine. And he carried on. He said, if Hashem created the universe in such complete precision and perfection uh, and set up everything just right, otherwise nothing would exist. Uh, when it came to creating you, do you think he just threw the dice and created you randomly? Or do you think that he made you for a specific purpose? So I kind of thought this is an easy answer. You know, he must have. You know, Hashem must have put me here for a reason. And he said, okay, fine, right. He says, what are you here for? Why are you here? And at that point, I just threw up my arms and I said, you know, I actually don't know. I'm not sure. And at that point, I realized what real clarity was. You know, he, he was so clear about what, why he was here and what his mission is. He said, he came to the conclusion that Hashem put him in the world to stop intermarriage, to keep Jews Jewish and to educate Jews to want to be Jewish and stay Jewish. <coughs> That's his mission. The fact that he's a billionaire, the fact that he was born into a certain time and place in history to the parents that, that he was, was for, for this mission to keep Jews Jewish. He had complete clarity. And... I think that even asking the question, why am I here and what are my talents and what, what am I put here for? Even asking the question, before you even get to answering it, you're already in the in the 1% of the world who either has the privilege of being able to ask the question or has even thought of it. And that was a real clarifying moment to me to help me focus in terms of what I'm here for. And implicitly, I think that, that this is what I've been searching for and what, what I've probably done throughout my whole life. But he had really articulated this in, a, in an eloquent way, in a very meaningful, real way. What is my purpose? And I think that if anybody, if everybody can ask themselves that question, 
and really think it through and be open and honest with themselves and apply that, that is essentially leadership. All that Hashem can actually ask from us, or that He does ask, is know what we have, know what our talents are, know what we have for, use His guidance to to guide us and fulfill our potential. And that's leadership, you know, using it in the time and place that we are now to our full potential. If you can do that, then, then, then we're here for the right reason, and that's Jewish leadership. Beautiful. I want to ask you a little bit about failure, um, because <clears throat> if you look at the early you know, beginnings of your career, or careers, perhaps we should say, it sounds like it was one of, of not of success. And in particular, medicine, you invested so much, I imagine. I mean, I don't know the South African medical uh, training process, but in America, you know, it's four years of college and four years of med school and then a residency and a fellowship, et cetera. Uh, maybe it's a little bit less in South Africa, but it's a major investment. And then to pull away from that after a couple of years and then to go into business which doesn't succeed immediately. How did you deal with those things? Were those difficult times for you? Or did you always kind of have your eye on the ball and say, I'm going to make it big in business and you know, I'm not worried about the past? Yeah. So a question which often comes up, you know, friends ask me and family, do I regret doing medicine? Um, and in South Africa, how it works, similar to the UK system, there's a, a six-year program. It's, um, th- there is no undergrad. It's a one long six-year program program. Uh, really pre-med and, uh, and clinical rolled into one. And I went into it, as I said, uh, wanting to help people. About halfway through, I figured out this is really not my thing. I don't feel any passion for it. And the, I just can't go through my life, you know, uh, without feeling at least some uh, direct personal involvement with what I'm doing. Why didn't you pull out then? Uh, it's a good question. If I pulled out, you know, you kind of get to a point of no return. You know, if it is a if I'd done a pre-med and, and, a, and a med school like in the U.S., I would have come up with, with, with a degree. If I dropped out in third or fourth year, that, I would have come out with nothing. So it was a pragmatic decision. Uh, I carried on. Uh, and you kind of never know how, you know, why you do things. A uh, question comes up often, you know, do I regret it? Uh, about eight years ago in Jerusalem, something happened where where I realized that if only for this, this is the reason I did medicine. It was an area of Shabbos. Uh, we had just moved into a, into a new home in uh, Jerusalem, which had just been restored. Uh, my 12-year-old daughter was getting ready for Shabbos. This was uh, on a Friday uh, Friday afternoon. This is area of Shabbat Haggadol. Um, so we were in Israel for Pesach. And uh, she was in the bathroom. She uh, stepped out of the shower to close the door, which had some very old glass panes in it. Uh, one of the windows shattered and uh, basically a shard of glass stabbed her in, the, in her leg. Um, I heard screaming. I ran in and I found blood gushing out of her leg, literally like water pouring out of a tap. Um, if I hadn't been there on the spot within 30 seconds, she wouldn't have made it. So do I regret medicine? Not for a second. You know, we kind of guide it. You know, God runs the world. We don't know why we end up doing what we do. If it's only for that 30 seconds that I, that I went through six years of medical school, it was worth it. Like, I'd do it a hundred times over. So we don't know. You know, we just don't know. And the, the, there have been other stories as well, but, uh, you know, being a bit facetious, I probably did save a few lives as well, other lives along the way. I don't think that I really killed anyone, or, or certainly not that I was aware of. But, um, 
Yeah, don't regret it for a second. Incredible. And then <coughs> these early business failures, as you described them, what do you attribute those to? Do you think that was just lack of experience or just some businesses don't have the muzzle and yeah. sometimes they do? You know, it's, it's a funny thing. You know, I, uh, after transitioning from uh, medicine to business by spending three years uh, working for a consulting firm, monitor company out of Boston, I started a few businesses which failed. I'm far more comfortable discussing my failures because there's a lot more of it. Um, and I remember them more than, than the successes. Uh, I think really what life is about is you've, you're going to be doing a whole lot of things and trying things, trying business ideas, business concepts, uh, whatever it might be, and some will work and some won't. Some of them might be misjudgment. You might have just made a mistake in understanding the opportunity or there, there just simply was no opportunity. Other times they're competitors who do it better. Sometimes... Uh, you just can't execute. I mean, I, there's one business I wanted to start. Um, at the end of apartheid in South Africa, there were tens or hundreds of, of multinationals scrambling to re-enter South Africa uh, post-sanctions. I'd just come out of a, uh, a three-year stint in consulting. I thought I was perfectly placed to, to help uh, companies come in, uh, entry strategies, understanding the local market, competitive environment. And I was. I, I really could have done a lot of the work or, or figured out a lot of strategies for these companies coming in. What I realized is that I just simply couldn't sell the work. I couldn't find people prepared to pay for it. It is a great lesson for me. Went in, you know, with, with complete conviction that this was a great opportunity and realized I simply didn't, couldn't find a channel to sell into. I couldn't sell projects. Might be that I'm a bad salesman. Might have been that it was just <laughs> simply mis uh, I misconstrued the opportunity, uh, but I simply couldn't sell. Couldn't sell, and so that that business closed down. And then uh, tried a few others as well. Worked incredibly hard. It was often just a brick wall, for various reasons. Again, you know, it might have just been bad strategy, bad concept, bad execution, or bad muzzle. You know, and then uh, you know, thankfully got into business, which was which uh, was really a rising tide, which was online gaming. And we managed to sort of float a boat in that rising tide, and uh, thank God we, we did it right. I want to talk about that. I just <coughs> wanted to ask if at any point did you consider returning to medicine? You had this amazing fallback option while these businesses are failing. Did you ever think about going back? No, I just kept pushing on. Interesting. Yeah, no, I just, just uh, uh, it was a fallback which I would have gone back to if necessary. Uh, but at that point, I wasn't, th you know, I was thinking, uh, okay, so I failed. I'm going to try something different. Did you have a family yet at this point to support? I had a wife who was supporting me a lot of the time. Um, so it was a team effort. It, it really was a team effort. You know, Lauren and I had been married, for, you know, by the time I got into the gaming business, uh, we had one kid, uh, had, uh, had a daughter. Uh, but she was working and, and uh, sometimes supporting me, sometimes I was supporting her. But it was a team effort. So now tell yeah. me a little bit about the gaming uh, industry and, and what you've done there. Is that online poker, things like that, or is it more fantasy sports? Yeah, no, no. So we failed dismally in online poker. Uh, <laughs> we were, we uh, did... Uh, so have many others, by the way, at least the players. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some of them did well. Yeah, I Some do actually, I should say, I know a student. Uh, I worked at University of Maryland, yeah. and uh, I had a student once who came to college at about 22 years old, something like that. And why are you starting so late? He said, well... I made a million dollars playing online poker, so, uh, and it was fascinating to hear him describe how he would, you know, sit in a room, 
with multiple monitors and he'd be playing multiple games at once and basically a, a, a game of you know volume play and he would just play so many hands that he was he was making serious amounts of money yeah it was a funny thing there, there was a time in the industry when there were very good poker players in in the states playing against basically housewives in uh, northern europe sweden <laughs> sweden norway denmark specifically um so you had these uh, fish being gobbled up by sharks uh so some guys did do really well and uh, what happened really they were taking advantage of the time zones and during the working day in, in America, they're playing against these uh, these ladies there, or or during early morning in, in the states, they're playing during the day against these these uh, ladies. Wow, interesting to hear that. It's an interesting okay. dynamic. Anyway, um, so we we were in the online uh, casino business. Uh, I was in a business which which uh, did marketing and back end services for online gaming. Uh, it became uh we we started out really at the infancy of the industry so uh we were there almost from the beginning um a lot of south africans a lot of canadians uh, a few israelis uh quite a jewish industry uh yeah. it was a very you know good uh, close tight bunch of guys you know we got friendly with a lot of our competitors in in different places and um we had very few american competitors uh we, we came in at an interesting time in the industry where a brother had figured out there's, there's this opportunity at the really the birth of e-commerce uh, to sell virtual services. And he figured out that online gaming would be a virtual service where we could basically do business around the world without, without having to ship anything. And uh, we, we got into that way. But we were in this unusual area where our potential American competitors uh, couldn't get into the industry because they had licenses. So Regulation this, issues. Yeah, so, so there's an issue of regulation. The, the big incumbent casinos, the land casinos, uh, had licenses which precluded them from going online. Is it the uh, Indian reservations largely or the Vegas? No, it, it is Vegas, Vegas and Atlantic Not City, City. Yeah, yeah. And, and the reservations. So essentially they, they, their licenses, uh, which are given to them by the various states or gambling, gaming authorities in the various states, precluded them from unregulated gaming activity. If they, for example, uh, if Steve Wynn was involved in unregulated gaming in Uzbekistan, he would lose his license in Vegas. It was a crazy thing. Wow. But uh, he didn't have to be involved in, in illegal gaming in Uzbekistan. If it was even unregulated, he would lose his license in Vegas. So that kept the big guys out, and it gave us a real shadow for about five, six years uh, to get into the industry. And... Americans were generally a bit uh, uh, non-gaming guys, were just generally cautious about uh, gaming in uh, in the U.S. But the uh, area that we operated in was was legal and unregulated, which allowed us to operate. And basically, we, we had a free run. At, uh, obviously, with, with our competitors at building an industry in the U.S. Right. So basically, people would go online to play various types of casino games but, yeah, but yeah. just doing it online yeah so instead of getting in if you live in la instead of getting into your car and driving to vegas or or uh, reno uh, you'd uh, basically log in online and, and play against our services which were sitting actually in canada so the uh, most regulations most states uh, regulations in the u.s deemed that the gambling happened at the server not where, where the player was so we're licenses uh, in various jurisdictions and uh, we were operating comfortably with, within uh, state and federal law. How, how has that industry changed over the years? And, and I think the United States, I know like, sports gambling has become legalized, I think, at the federal level in the U.S., and uh, many states are legalizing it. 
Is that is that were you involved in that at all in any bookmaking on the on the athletic no, side? No. So I'm I'm not current. I can really talk about sort of from up until about ten years ago. I've been uh, I sold out about twelve, ten, ah. twelve years ago. So sports gambling in America w- was always illegal. So online sports gambling was illegal. So we stayed clear of that. We only did casinos. Um, subsequent, subsequently, what happened is in 2006, a law was passed to prevent um, gambling on college sports, which effectively closed down our banking relationships in America. So we, we actually pulled out of America uh, in 2006. Interesting. Uh, so uh, industry changed completely uh, from... America being 98% or 95% of our, our business, uh, it went to zero. That, that, that wasn't fun. Huh. Uh, we had to reinvent ourselves and get into Europe and Asia. So we, we had a few, you know, it wasn't all, you know, uh, uh, roses, you know, the whole way. You know, it, it did get a bit tough. Did you ever struggle with any, any of the moral questions of being involved in gambling? As, as a Jew, obviously, Judaism is not super favorably disposed to gambling. Um, did you ever feel that way or did you feel that you were just a service provider and people have their discretion to, you know, just like you could sell alcohol to someone and they could abuse it or use it in moderation? Um, did you feel kind of, you know, the same way about gambling? Did you ever confront those moral questions? Yeah, so, so it's a good question. You know, the, the, there was the approach that we had. And, and again, when, when uh, I went into the industry at uh, that point, I'd call myself a traditional Jew uh, we, we weren't observant, uh, but we actually did ask a question. <coughs> well, I, was, I asked a question of uh, the person who became uh, chief rabbi in South Africa, a good friend, Rabbi Warren Goldstein. Goldstein. He's been on the podcast. <laughs> okay. Shabbat project. So, so uh, we, uh, I asked him out for lunch. And I, you know, I asked him the, he, had, he had been my rabbi in, in Johannesburg for a few years already. This is probably 10 years before he was chief rabbi. Uh, so I asked him this specific question, you know, can I go into this business? You know, is it okay? Um, and he gave a, a halachic response to it. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd spoken to him on the phone before and he said, let's, let's get together for lunch and discuss it. And essentially, um, if we as the casino were not gambling ourselves, if we weren't extending credit, and if, if we were being transparent about the odds of the player winning or losing, on that basis, it's, permi- it's permittable uh, to be in that industry. So the question is, is it the business that, that uh, are we bringing the benefit and pleasure of online gambling to the, uh, to the world? You can argue maybe we're not, we, we weren't uh, creating tremendous value in the world. Were we providing entertainment? Uh, yes, we, we saw this as really uh, another form of entertainment, um, not too dissimilar maybe to going to theater or movies. Um, we were very aware of the uh, risk, and and my medical background, you know, made me even more sensitive to this addiction. of uh, addiction and problem gaming, yeah. uh, which was a concern. <coughs> we we did a lot of work in this area, along with some of our competitors uh, in the gaming industry. We set up programs to identify problem gamblers, uh, and were able to lock them out of the not only out. Of, out of our own casinos, but out of the industry completely. Which is hard to do because you're essentially shooting your best <coughs> customers in the foot. It's like if uh, somebody buys a lot of, you know, uh, a lot of hamburgers or something at your restaurant and you, you keep them out of your restaurant after two weeks of hamburgers. You know? Yeah, you know, uh, yes and no. Uh, problem gaming, um, the uh, level of addiction, the studies show that it's probably about half a percent of people that, that are addicted to gaming. Uh, problem gamers, 
uh, we put it a higher number, probably around 2%. So two in 100 people really couldn't control their behavior or, or were either couldn't control the behavior and were compulsive gamblers or were playing more than they should have. Uh, we, we just closed them out, gave them money back and closed them out. There's, it really wasn't a, uh, it, it wasn't even a question of how many there were. It was a question of what's the right thing to do. Yeah. And we had no intention at all of taking money from people that, that couldn't either couldn't afford it or were in over their heads yeah. so um if you're selling hamburgers you're selling something that's cost you something you know if you if somebody's gambling your site you just you know give them the money back and close them out and what was interesting is uh because we were online we could identify them so See, soon, to trans the patterns, yeah, yeah. So, so we'd, we'd, we'd uh, identify them through a pattern. You know, all, uh, very often they would say, listen, you know, it was, uh, there'd be a pattern of how they'd present. They might say it was their kid who was, who was using their credit card or their wife or stolen. As soon as we figured out what the story was, generally it was a problem gamer. Uh, we'd identify them through their name, address, zip code. ISP? Uh, well, ISP, hard drive, serial number. Um, even so... If even if somebody came in with a different name, different yes, address, account, d- d- right? <laughs> d- different social security number, if we picked up that they had the same hard disk uh, serial number, we could lock them out. Uh-huh. And by creating a shared database with uh, our colleagues at competing uh, gaming companies, we could actually close them out completely. Wow. So we, we kind of felt that we were doing a pretty good job of it. Uh, in the land casino, somebody could always, you know, if they were locked out of uh, out of the sands for some for being a problem gamer after having self-identified. Because uh, the casinos would have photographs of people that shouldn't be in there, or that, that had uh, were problem gamers, you could walk down the street and go somewhere else. Right. Uh, I think we did a, a pretty good job in the industry, as an industry, of uh, of helping these people and getting them out of, uh, or making it much harder for them to go online and play. Oh. It sounds like your life has been one of many transitions, <coughs> um, and <coughs> from the medical to the to the business and various businesses, and you alluded to some other transitions that I want to touch on as we start to wrap up. You had described that you were at one point a uh, more what do you call traditional or South African style uh, Jew and it sounds like over time you perhaps have become more observant Um, and you also indicated that you sold out of the business a number of years ago I'd like to hear about who you sold to did you just you know sell to your brother or or did you guys jointly sell to another corporation and then what have you been doing since then has it been all philanthropy uh, and so forth Okay, th- there's there's a few questions in there. Yeah, uh, I'll deal with some of the I think more interesting ones first. So, how did we end up getting observant? Um, my wife and I were living in Johannesburg. Uh, this was uh, in the late '90s. Uh, Lauren, my wife, was pregnant with our first child, and uh, I remember quite clearly I was driving along a street in Johannesburg, and my father called me on my on my mobile. You know, and said, good yontiv. And I said, yeah, good yontiv. W- w- just remind me what yontiv is it? He said, no, today's uh, Shavuot. Wow. So, and I was embarrassed to to think that, you know, I've got a, got a wife pregnant with, with, with a child, and I actually can't remember the difference between Sukkot and Shavuot. Twelve years in a Jewish day school. Um, and then uh, sort of a number of years at university and, you know, out and about. And I actually... Uh, didn't uh, didn't know the difference between Sukkot and Shavuot, and at that point I realised if uh, if I had any chance of keeping a yet unborn child Jewish, my wife and I had to really go back in and you know up our game, 
you know, my father had always, you know, drummed into us, don't expect a, a school to educate your kids for you or bring your kids up. You've got to do it yourselves. So at that point, we made a decision we're going to start learning. We're going to learn a bit more about our heritage. Uh, Johannesburg was, was a booming place in terms of learning. Uh, we joined Warren Goldstein Shul, uh, the youth minion at Waverley Shul. That was, uh, so we became close friends with uh, Warren and Gina. Um, they, they had a, a kid, Morty, who was just a few months older than, than our oldest, Kira. And we became friends and went to Warren Shirim, started learning with uh, Rabbi Chaim Willis Adesh, went to an Arachim seminar. The famous Rolling Stone article. <clears throat> yeah, yeah uh, I, I hadn't read the article before. I well, met his him. sister passed away. Yeah, so a very special, very special man, very special people in Johannesburg. So... We had no intention at all of becoming from that was the last thing in our minds. Uh, we had friends who had kind of been on a journey that were either, that, that were observant, and uh, one thing led to another. And uh, next thing we knew, we were slowly uh, transitioning to keeping a kosher home and uh, stop working on Shabbos, and you stopped using the phone on Shabbos and stopped driving. And the next thing, we were keeping Shabbos, wow. uh, and that was Johannesburg in the in the nineties and early two thousands. Did you move to England because of more greater Jewish opportunities? No. We moved to England for two reasons. One is uh, business. So the center of the gaming industry at the time was uh, was in the UK. Interesting. Uh, and we had a lot of work going on there. And um, uh, another bit of a push was uh, my wife and I separately within a few weeks were held up at gunpoint in Johannesburg. Yeah. And we thought this is not so cool. Don't really want to uh, live looking over, looking over our shoulders all the time. And uh, we moved to England. I thought as long as you don't stop at red lights, you're okay. That's what I've heard. <laughs> uh, yeah, but uh, sometimes the hijackers wait for you at home. Oh, you know, it's, it's, it's not always red lights. Anyway, so after, uh, after I got hijacked uh, with a friend and, and our kids, um, I felt you know, a bit uneasy, but not too bad. Uh, after my wife got hijacked with uh, our two-year-old son, Jacob, at the time, uh, I freaked out completely sure. and figured this, this is not a, not a way to live and time to go. Yeah. Yeah. So that was it. Wow. So tell us a little bit about where you're at now business-wise. And did you, you, sold, you said you sold the company. Yeah. So as, as I mentioned, uh, business had you know, thankfully started doing well. And I transitioned out of gaming uh, into other areas that my brother and I were doing, which was uh, real estate mm-hmm. and VC. And that's really been a, been a, a big focus uh, now. We've uh, been in financial services, uh, internet financial services, which has been, been pretty good. And then real estate, you know, which has been uh, far more pedestrian, a big change in pace, you know, after being in, in online where uh, you'd experiment uh, with an idea, you'd try a new idea, you'd literally get it going, talk about it one day, the next day you'd be executing it, and the next day you'd see how it's doing, or even later that day, to uh, real estate where things work in sort of multi-year cycles. It was a real change of gears, but thankfully, you know, we've, uh, we've had some siyata dishmai there as well. What kind of real estate are you doing? <clears throat> Commercial? Yeah, doing mainly commercial real estate. Retail or uh, office? Commercial offices. So, offices. so doing offices uh, mainly in Europe and mainly in the UK and South Africa. But, uh, but, but predominantly in the UK, which has been interesting with uh, Brexit. Interesting. And in the US, I know that the office real estate market has been difficult in some places because of the preponderance of people working at home and the ability to not need an office <laughs> anymore <coughs> for many people. Has that been a challenge in some of these other places? It, it, kind of, it has kind of been a challenge, but not really. Um, I think that the, this idea of working from home or, or, or co-working like, like we work is, is a new trend. I think this is uh, probably a secular trend away from 
big corporate office space. So there's a kind of a re-rating. A bigger thing in the UK really is uh, the demise of shopping centers in the high street. Uh, the high street being um, sort of the local uh, retail shopping areas. Because of online? Yeah, <clears throat> online has basically destroyed uh, shopping centers. Uh, the UK has been at the forefront of, of this of this trend. Uh, wow. Europe is, uh, is following and America I think is quite far behind, but going the same way, that online has just really destroyed shopping centers. Well, the big box stores are just dying out. And <clears throat> yeah, well, it's more than big box stores. It's uh, clothing. It's uh, pretty much everything is being destroyed by online. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so that, that's been a trend. And then offices. We, we've uh, done a lot of office space. And uh, it's essentially, uh, the UK has two markets. There's London, which is basically a global city, similar to, say, Hong Kong or New York, which is really independent to the rest of the UK. So there's kind of two countries in the UK. There's uh, London, and then there's there's not London. Um, we've done some stuff in London, but really, it's um, it's been booming for the last uh, ten years. So no opportunities. Meanwhile, the north of England, places like Liverpool and Sheffield, areas near London, uh, Milton Keynes have really got smashed in 2008, and we took advantage of some of the opportunities. Buy then. Low. <laughs> yeah, but well, you know, you never know if you're buying low, you might end up selling lower. Uh, th- that's out of your control, but we um, generally thought, bought what we thought was low, and uh, for most most of the time we were right, uh, and things bounced back in, in some of those cities. And I did, you know, buying low, selling high. That's uh, that's kind of worked for us. That's always a good approach. <laughs> we're trying to make money. Well, I mean, it's a good approach in theory. The, the trick <laughs> is really uh, making it work. Doing it. So, just tell us a little bit about your philanthropy and what drives you. you we started out by saying how how invested you've been in. Uh, mentioned HUK and JLE and Orsum in South Africa and many different causes. What are yeah. some of the things that really drive you in that arena and, and how much of your time do you spend on that? I probably spend about a half or a third of my time in, on projects. Uh, in 2000, and, uh, 2000, my brother and I uh, set up a foundation called Yad Mordechai to deal with our charitable dealings. Named after your father? N- named after my father's late father. father. Thank God my father and mother are around. Wonderful. Um, so named after my father's late father, Max, who was a very generous person. And uh, we, uh, we set up with three trustees, myself, uh, very good friends in South Africa, Mike Setzer and Damon Hoff. Damon. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Damon has now moved to London. And uh, basically, we tried to figure out what, what our objective should be. And we did a trip to Israel to meet with the uh, Gedolim. And uh, we came after meeting with really the sort of uh, leaders of our generation who predominantly said that we should be supporting Torah and then sure. exactly which, you know, how and where that, that, that was really debatable or subject to discussion. Rabbi Moshe Shapiro said to us, the first thing we should do is save lives, physically then spiritually, and Torah obviously has got to be a priority. What we came away with was thinking, hang on a sec, we've got to find a project where we can save, actually save lives, and it wasn't so easy to find that. Uh, but we did, I'll get to that now. And then it became clear that if we want Jews to be Jewish in 500 years, the only way to do that is supporting Torah. That by definition is what keeps Jews Jewish. You know, uh, and sitting here in Spain, where we're doing the podcast, we saw what happened after the Inquisition and the expulsion. Jews who tried to hide their Yiddishkeit and uh, took Torah out of their lives stayed culturally Jewish at home for a few generations, but the Yiddishkeit has almost completely disappeared. And that uh, you understand if you look at, at 500-year chunks. To get back to Ramosha Shapiro, we, we looked for a project where we could save lives. 
Rav Avram Edelstein, another South African sure. uh, who was helping us uh, find these projects, took us to, to Ukraine and Russia. And he said the one place that we can save lives in the Jewish world today is in, in the former Soviet Union, where Jews, Jews, or particularly Jewish kids, were on the streets really? in, in the sewers. Uh, because of the poverty? Because of the poverty. Uh, because of the, after the fall of the Soviet Union, the economies uh, really went to dread. Uh, and there's no safety net. So you had literally thousands of Jewish kids in dire situations. And uh, the one place, uh, well, two places that, that we found that were were looking for Jewish orphans and Jewish kids uh, at risk were uh, Tikva in Ukraine, in Odessa, and Yad Yisrael in Pinsk. So it is Rabbi Bakht and Rafael Kruskal in Odessa, and Moshe Fim in Pinsk. Uh, and uh, we went away and... Uh, basically designed a project to rescue initially 100 kids. So we challenged them uh, to, uh, we asked them if we gave them half of the budget of 100 kids for the following year, would they be able to go and uh, find 100 children for us? And uh, to cut a long story short, they did. And that launched our project, Saving Jewish Kids in the Former Soviet Union. And from those 100 kids, uh, between these two organizations, they went from about 150 children at any one point in time. Now, 15 years later, combined between them, they're probably 500 kids. Uh, they, they're taking care of at any one point in time. Unbelievable. So, so this is an orphanage? What are they yeah. doing, these kids? Are they trying to put them into permanent homes, into foster care? It's quite complicated there. Essentially, what, what happens is the kids come in. If they can't go home, you know, we, we try to get them home. Otherwise, we, we really take them into our care and we give them a home education, give them a community, and uh, ultimately what we're seeing is they're coming out of the other end of the system and the, and the process, or wouldn't say out of the other end of the system, out of the other end of the home, uh, functional, normal, most of the time successful, rounded people who understand what, what a home should look like. And uh, not only has that happened, we the, the over 800 children born to alumni of, of the homes in these places. Wow. How do you model family in an institutional setting? So it's not easy, but it, it all boils down to people and role models. So we've got fantastic people uh, living there, working there, our teachers, our families. Even though the kids are living in the homes, they spend uh, in the institutions, they spend a lot of time in the homes of our staff seeing how families work and should work. It's, it's all about the role models. Yeah. Do you invest Jewish education into these places as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, the kids have got a strong Jewish education. They learn English, they learn Hebrew. They learn... A uh, Russian, maybe? The, well, <laughs> Russian, you know, kind of Russian is, is everything, right? And uh, we, we try to give them a, a great secular education, and we try to give them a, a real Jewish education. And I think these kids in, in Odessa and uh, Pinsk now are getting certainly a far stronger Jewish education than I got as a kid. Wow. And they're learning Hebrew as a spoken language, so when, please God, they end up getting to Israel they can fit right in. How often do you go visit these, these places? Um, normally there are a couple times a year. A couple times a year. Yeah. And, but but uh, because we've now become active also in fundraising, we spend a lot of time with uh, with the people that are running them. Interesting. So you, so you go with them. A number of times a year. Yeah, yeah. So sp spend a lot of time traveling around the States, uh, South Africa. Who do you, uh, tr you try to raise from uh, Russian oligarchs? or who, uh, <laughs> we, we haven't had great success from, from oligarchs. Even Surprised. Yeah, uh, I was very surprised at the beginning. The oligarchs got a different way of approaching philanthropy. Um, they're doing some great work, but uh, there is a different approach. And, and fundamentally, 
the culture really was, was not one of giving. You know, the Soviet Union was a, was a very selfish place. Sure. It was a tough, hard, selfish place where you had to really be on your toes and, and take what you can out of the system. And uh, I think that there was a huge change of, had to be, well, there has been a huge change of mindset from what's in it for me and how can I get the most out of it uh, to how can I help others. Yeah. And uh, we're seeing some huge philanthropy coming from the oligarchs, uh, but it tends to be more focused on the West um, <clears throat> and supporting projects outside of the former Soviet Union, obviously with, with some big notable exceptions. Uh, but we haven't had great success and uh, um, interesting uh, or, or generating interest amongst Ukrainian and Russian oligarchs in supporting our projects. So you've been just uh, it might, might, over, yeah. yeah, it might have been our fault, but you know, the question often comes up, how do South Africans end up supporting Jews in Ukraine? So first of all, you know, we uh, came in late to the game. The big donors originally, uh, initially were American and, and English. Ed and Keith Frankel and their families, um, uh, Seth Gersberg in the States, uh, the Schimmel family in London, these were the big donors uh, who really launched these institutions. Uh, and then we came in later as South Africans. And I think that we followed in the footsteps. We were, you know, and this is, I'm at a leadership conference now. Uh, what is leadership? Leadership is really stepping into the void where nobody else happens to be there. We don't consider ourselves leaders. We just kind of consider ourselves people doing what has got to be done. And uh, the fact that we've got no family connections to Ukraine at all really w wasn't part of the calculus. Um, if you walk past a river and a kid's drowning, you don't say, well, is that kid from my hometown? You just dive in and save him. And that's kind of how we saw Ukraine. Well, can you close with any stories about uh, maybe one or two particular kids that you <coughs> met that would sort of be emblematic of, of this rehabilitation <coughs> process that you've invested so much in? Um, th there've been a lot of stories. You know, there've been hundreds of stories. But uh, we had a fundraiser in London last week, and a young woman stood up, uh, confident, polished, and uh, we figured out she must have been two or three years old on our first trip to Ukraine. Uh, she was living at home with her mother, who died of alcoholism. Uh, she moved into the home age six, and now age 18, she's standing in front of a crowd of 300 people in London, speaking perfect English, uh, telling a story. And uh, the woman who was with her also had come through the home. She was uh, uh, showing her around London, uh, had left her kids at home in, in Ukraine uh, with her husband and, and was there with her. So I think that in itself is a story. You know, a kid who Lahavdil would have been on the streets, yeah. both of them would have probably been on the streets, uh, are now, you know, just doing great. Living good, balanced, normal lives, successful in their careers and, and their homes. You know, I was sitting there crying just seeing this trying to pretend not to, but seeing that was, was, was real. Well, it's, it's a fascinating story and a really unique direction for philanthropic investment. And I don't think something people think much about. I certainly didn't know anything about it, uh, but an amazing, amazing outlet for those resources that you've been blessed with. And I guess you've really been answering Ellie Horn's question in many ways. What were you put here for, at least in part, to give a chance at life to hundreds or thousands of kids and the generations that will come after them. So thank you for that, and thank you for joining us today. Good. Thank you. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com 
and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews You Should Know.